Welcome to Infinite Earth Radio. We believe that in a world of finite natural resources, a smart and sustainable future is only possible by lifting up people and unleashing unlimited human potential. Infinite Earth Radio will not only help you learn from bright visionary civic leaders who are building smarter, more inclusive and sustainable communities, but you'll discover how you can bring these ideas to your community. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Hancocks and Vernice Miller-Travis. Welcome back to Infinite Earth Radio, where we talk with thought leaders and change agents who are transforming the future by building smarter, more sustainable and more equitable communities. This is Danielle Dolan, Water Program Director for the Local Government Commission and your guest host for today. Joining me is a close friend of mine and partner in a lot of the work we do for our series of episodes leading up to the National New Partners for Smart Growth Conference, which will be held in San Francisco this year from February 1st through 3rd. New Partners is the nation's largest smart growth and sustainability event. The program will span three days and will feature tracks focusing on a wide range of topics, including two of the topics we're discussing today, water and housing. You won't want to miss this phenomenal event, so register now at newpartners.org. On to our guest for today, Dr. Mike Antos is a senior watershed manager with the Santa Ana Watershed Project Authority, better known as SAPA. Mike also serves on the board of the Coalition for Our Water Future, was the founding director of the Center for Urban Water Resilience, and previously worked for the Council for Watershed Health. So he is very well equipped to address issues relating to integrated water management and the intersection between water and homelessness. So Mike, how long have you been working on the issue of homelessness and how it relates to water? Hi, Danielle. I'm really excited to be here today and I'm glad we're having this conversation. It's a topic that came to SAPA's attention in early 2016 when I joined the organization. We were assigned to institute a statewide program called the Disadvantaged Community Involvement Program. This is something that was created by the voters of California when they passed a water bond package, Proposition 1. And the program is intended to support the voices of communities that previously weren't able to participate in our water and water planning to have them join the conversations and assure that their voices are part of how we think about the future for waters and watersheds. Inside that program is a concept called unrepresented communities. It's a term that doesn't have a definition in state policy. So it was really left up to regions like ours to think through what the underrepresented communities of our watershed were. And during my outreach, some of our stakeholders suggested that the people of the watershed who are experiencing homelessness together could be considered a community that is underrepresented in our planning for water and watershed. So it was really that idea that sparked our, our path down this process. So we've been working really about just a little under two years now, on trying to understand the intersections between homelessness and water management. So this is really a recent development in your work at SAPA. It is. At, at SAPA, both Santa Ana Watershed Project Authority and I, in my previous roles, have done a lot of work trying to support communities that are called disadvantaged communities in California, which is a, a policy term for communities that have uh, an income threshold below the median of the state income. Uh, so it's low-income communities, but not necessarily communities in poverty. So we've had a lot of experience trying to sort out bringing the voices of members of disadvantaged communities forward into making decisions about water and watershed management. And it's really in this program that 
that idea expanded to include those who are experiencing homelessness. That's an interesting phrase you use, Mike, people experiencing homelessness. I've often heard you say at conferences when I see you facilitating that words matter. And I really appreciate your emphasis on the words that we use in conversation and in the work we do. I've personally learned quite a lot from you regarding how we talk about equity in general. Can you explain to our audience why that distinction between people experiencing homelessness rather than homeless people or the homeless is so important? I can. I like to start answering this kind of question by foregrounding my own privilege. And when doing work like this, uh, it's important, I, I find, to make sure that privilege is in the room in a conscious way. And what I mean by that is that I have the good fortune of having a home that has water service to it. I was, you know, educated. Um, My family was supportive of me. I am not suffering any mental illnesses. I'm not addicted to any drugs. And I have many privileges that put me in this position to be able to do this work. And I have to bring that forward and make it part of how I do my work. And and I think absent that, you end up reinforcing these distinctions between various groups of people and various people, and you end up doing harm or reinforcing harms that exist in our inequities in our society that are there for any number of reasons. So I, I like to foreground that in my answer. Now, To me, for years, I've been working on this idea of disadvantaged communities, which is sadly a policy term in California. I say sadly because I actually had a um, student, a high school student, attend a meeting with us once. And at the end, I asked her what she thought of the meeting. And she said, well, well, I I can't really answer. I don't know enough. I said, no, no, I really want to hear your opinion. And she said, well, disadvantaged is mean, right? And she threw air quotes around disadvantaged. And it encapsulated so clearly to me that we have a challenge with language. Governments in, in general have a tendency to need to put labels on everything to then be able to manage them. And there's policy value to having a concept of a community that is disadvantaged, but it's way too easy to then slip that to an acronym that we all pronounce, DAC, right? And we're doing work with DACs and what that does is it dehumanizes the people whom we're trying to support. It makes it that much more difficult to understand that there are human beings at the other end of all these policies and programs and efforts. So really coming out of that into this program, I pretty quickly recognized that the concept of a homeless person is a label that loads a whole bunch of um, negative stereotypes and a sense of guilt upon the person or the people you're trying to work with. And you do all of that without thinking about it. Rooms of people do that and it it happens without them necessarily knowing it. But by flipping it around and saying people who are experiencing homelessness, it foregrounds their humanity and it helps you really move down a path that's thinking about other people who need our help. They're members of our communities. They're our neighbors. In fact, the city of Riverside, who I work with a lot on these issues, They talk about them, the people who are experiencing homelessness, as neighbors without homes. They've gone perhaps even one step further, and I I likely will start adopting some of that language myself. Yeah, I really like that new terminology, neighbors without homes, for the exact reasons you cited, that the humanity, that these are actually people, members of our community, 
that are not being served and how can we better serve them? And thank you, Mike, also for always reminding me of my own privilege. So we are seeing a major increase in our neighbors without homes across the country. A recent count estimated more than half a million people across the U.S. that do not have homes and about 200,000 of those that don't even have access to a shelter. With this huge rise in homelessness, why do you think more people who are homeless are choosing to live along streams? Yeah, it's an interesting puzzle. In our region, there's two truths, I think. And this is, of course, not scientific. But through our conversation, you know, through this work, myself and my colleagues have been to meet and interact with and share stories with people who are experiencing homelessness. And many of them will share that one of the reasons they picked to live along the stream is that it's beautiful. And Southern California has worked really hard to maintain the streams that we do have as recreational facilities and quality habitat. And for that reason, it is a a place if you have to, if you're forced to live in a tent, there it it is a beautiful place to live in a tent. Of course, that's the the pull, I suppose. The push is probably more important in that our many of our cities, in an effort to try to manage homelessness, have instituted policies where it's illegal to sleep in public, right? To pitch your tent in an alley. So very often we've heard that in response to those policies, law enforcement officers will actually confront people who are homeless and suggest to them that if they go to the river, that's the spot where they won't be pestered, where they can be safe, or I should say safe from being arrested. So the many people are driven to the river by the policies of the cities who are hoping to, to alleviate homelessness through those sorts of uh, those efforts. And, uh, you know, neither of those estimates are, neither of those answers are scientific. We don't know that that's exactly what causes everyone to be there. We've also, of course, heard that we, we had a person who is experiencing homelessness at one of our symposiums, and she shared that for her, there's, there's a significant amount of shame in being homeless, and that for her, the effort to have herself out of view of the community that she's part of, because she's ashamed, is one of the things that brought her to the river. So there's a serious number of reasons why that we have the encampments that arrive here along the rivers, but it is something uh, that we definitely are now focused on. It's an interesting point that individuals that are experiencing homelessness because of that shame are trying to hide from the rest of society. And that makes it all the more difficult for organizations that are trying to provide services to those communities to actually find them. Yeah, it's interesting. One of our partners, again, City of Riverside at our recent symposium suggested that the way that they think about the population who are experiencing homelessness are in these three categories. There's the people who are the have-nots. And those are folks who don't have the resources necessary to have a home. It's whether they're out of work or they don't have the ability to sign a lease, so on and so forth. And then there's the cannots, the people who are homeless who have substance or mental health issues or fear or any number of other conditions that prevents them from living in a home or uh, achieving a home. And then there's the want-nots. And the want-nots, actually, the category of people who don't want to be in a house and would prefer to be in, in, in a homeless situation, that category by many is assumed to be very big, but the science shows it's actually very small. 
there are very few people who are making an active choice to live in a homeless situation. Um, many people who see surveys where homeless individuals choose to refuse services, then associate that refusal as a choice to remain homeless. When in fact, people who are experiencing homelessness often review services for any number of reasons. Some of them, of course, through their other challenges, prevent them from, from choosing services through a lack of trust or, or through a substance or mental health issue, substance abuse or mental health issue. So there's, it's an extraordinarily complicated puzzle. And this last year, we've been learning so much from our social services partners. I think it really is easy for society in general to focus on the will nots and the cannots. That's what most people, if you ask them on the street, what they think of homeless individuals and why they are homeless. It's either they're drug addicts or they're mentally ill or they've chosen that lifestyle. But there's that population and the ones that are probably unseen because of the shame. They want to be productive members of society. They want to be in permanent housing, but they haven't been able to. Right. It, it is a very complicated puzzle. And, you, and what we're learning is that the have-nots and the can-nots are the vast majority of the people who are currently experiencing homelessness in our region. There's very few want-nots. And, and helping the rest of our community understand that, I think, is a really important step that a lot of people are now trying to take, that we have a need for compassion to be at the front of our activities because so many are the have-nots and the can-nots that they are going to need our support. These neighbors of ours need the, our support so that they can transition back into, into a more healthy life. But Mike, neither of us work for a social services organization or a housing authority or a local government. You work for a water agency or a JPA, a member water agencies. So what does this really have to do with water? Why is it a problem for people experiencing homelessness to build these encampments along waterways? Well, it's interesting. Um, when I first started these conversations with water, the water managers of the watershed that we work with, you know, the vast majority under start and stop their understanding of homeless encampments as being a source of pollution in the waterways. Um, we talk about in our sec in our world, we talk about point sources and non-point sources of pollution where Point sources are a spot where you can point to a particular thing and say that is a spot where pollution is coming from. And it can be a pipe or a smokestack or something. And then we talk about non-point sources where pollution just comes from everywhere. Like all the streets contribute some pollution during rain because of the oil and brake dust and other things that cars leave behind. So in the context of homelessness, water in general thinks about the encampments as a point source of pollution, bacteria, and trash in particular. And it's interesting, this entire learning adventure that we've been on <clears throat> really started with the a water regulator, a staff member at the water regulator who said, you know what, I think us, in, us insisting that you move an encampment when the bacteria counts in the river are too high might actually not be a productive use of our authority and your resources. And you should look into that, right? So there was already an understanding starting to grow that thinking about homelessness in the context of simply water quality in the streams was insufficient. It was not actually resulting in solutions. And the more we learned, it actually turned out that our 
solution was actually making other people's problems more difficult because what we would do is we, the water community, would just ask the sheriff's department to come and move the encampment. And that would be our management action to keep the water quality high. And yes, the water quality would be perhaps improved for a short period of time, but all the social services agencies and all the people who are experiencing homelessness living in that encampment, their lives would be made much more difficult by our our intervention. So we've come to understand that the intersection is much broader than just water quality. So what are some of those other intersections besides water quality and, like you mentioned, loss of property for individuals who their impromptu home is that encampment? So the perhaps the most important one that we don't think about enough is the flood risk that are faced by the people experiencing homelessness that if they have placed themselves in streamways or along the riparian corridors of our region, and we have a Mediterranean climate here, so many of our streams are dry most of the time. But when it does rain, or when the, one of our flood control structures does do a release to move water around the watershed, a lot of water can come really quickly through our system. So the people who are experiencing homelessness themselves are at risk of floods, their bodies, their lives are at risk, but also all their property is at risk of washing away. We've heard many stories of encampments quickly scurrying to get clear of water and then watching all of their property wash downstream. And that the, that property is a loss for them. It's also a trash problem downstream. It also can be a flood problem downstream as it clogs pipes or other parts of the flood control system. So flood protection is certainly one of the things that intersects. Another important one is sanitation. And all of us that live in homes take for granted how important it is that we have toilets that flush and take away our wastes. And people living in encampments often don't have access to bathroom facilities, and they don't have access to a reliable supply of drinking water. Their health can be impacted by this. The lack of hygiene and a sufficient amount of drinking water is one of the number one reasons why people can get sick in these encampments. Any number of illnesses can can arrive from these sorts of things. In Southern California, in the summer of 2017, a hepatitis A outbreak in San Diego and Los Angeles County both made the national news as a challenge that was being confronted by those experiencing homelessness. So the the role of sanitation in our health, the health of our society, is something we don't think about very often. But for people living without homes, it's a it's a critical piece of water infrastructure that's just not available for them. There's also in California in 2013, we created a policy, we the voters, um, and signed into law by the governor a policy that there is a human right to water in California. And that that legislation says, quote, all humans have a, um, a right to safe, clean, affordable, and accessible water adequate for human consumption, cooking, and sanitary purposes. Right. So that's a relatively new law in California and how it comes out in policy is still being considered. But if you imagine that is true, people who are without homes, providing them that right to safe, clean, affordable, and accessible water adequate for their consumption, cooking, and sanitation, that is going to be a very tricky challenge to overcome. And then I suppose the last intersection that we talk about is that you know our, our streams and the riparian corridors along them are critical habitat and recreational areas for the watershed and the encampments can impinge on both of those uses 
on, on the habitat that we've worked really hard to restore and on the recreational facilities that are designed for the use of all, often those things can be impacted by large encampments. So when I run this list out, and I know I've been talking a bit here in a row, but when you run this list out, you start to see that there's a, a really large number of intersections between our water management efforts and the challenges of homelessness. It goes well beyond the simple water quality intersection that most of us imagined. And over the last two years, it's been really important for us learning how broadly these two things are connected. And it really drives us towards these new partnerships that we've been trying to institute. Mike, you just unpacked a whole lot of information and different concepts. I'd like to readdress some of them for our audience. The first one you mentioned was flood protection. And the way you described people scurrying away from the water for their own safety and then watching all of their belongings be swept away is so vivid and I think could help move the needle on our society recognizing the issue of homelessness as a real crisis. When we see flooding across the country, Hurricane Katrina, Superstorm Sandy, these natural disasters that cause flooding, it's very clear and vivid to us when we see people's homes being flooded and them losing all of their belongings. But if your home is a tent along the river, you're at much higher risk of losing all of your worldly goods in a relatively small flood incident. That's right. And in our region, a lot of our, as I mentioned, a lot of our waterways do double duty. They, they're all both flood control infrastructure for when it's raining. But when it's dry, we often use them as a way to convey water from place to place as a water supply infrastructure. So. It can be in the dead of night or in the middle of a bright sunny day that a dry stream suddenly fills with water as two agencies are moving water from place to place. Um, down in Orange County, which is a component of our watershed, there's a program to notify the community, the homeless communities of these planned releases. So now there's a team of Orange County Rangers that are part of a city net nonprofit who get told ahead of time by the big water agencies that there is going to be a release and they get out there and they notify everyone with enough time to be able to move their belongings. So we have sort of these smart interventions that have been instituted, but it is a, it is a challenge, right? That we often see these very charismatic rescue operations in Southern California where the fire department helicopter is hovering over someone in a tree in the middle of the LA river in a storm it's very often people who were living there that get caught off guard by the high flows. So it is an important issue for us to think about. And another issue you mentioned was sanitation and public health. The hepatitis A outbreak was really scary, I think, for everyone in California and anyone nationwide that travels to California. You recently hosted a homelessness symposium and had some public health experts on panels and one of the points that I found fascinating was the amount of money we spend on providing health care and addressing public health concerns and how much money we could save if these people that don't have access to health care, if we could provide preventative measures instead of constantly responding to crisis. Yeah, the hepatitis outbreaks in the two cities, they really capture your attention, but um, those public health health experts really helped us understand that they, though serious, are a fraction of the health challenges faced by people who are experiencing homelessness. And 
the hepatitis A outbreaks, I am hardly an expert in them, and I and I don't know enough about whether they are over or continuing or getting better or getting worse. This is a perhaps an issue for those who are interested to do some more research on them. One of the things that was really interesting at the symposium was shared a recent report by the Rand Corporation for Los Angeles County that showed over two years' time studying about 900 people who were moved from uh, living homeless into a housing situation with healthcare, it reduced the costs on the county by 60%, moving them from a homeless situation to a housed situation with healthcare. So you're right. I think there's really important savings to accrue to our communities if we can help overcome this crisis. That's huge. So providing permanent housing or even transitional housing for these community members would actually save our local government's money. Yes. Yeah, that, that's what the report showed. And I know a lot of people in the symposium were excited to hear about that report. I suspect it's gotten a lot of downloads in the last couple of weeks. Well, we'll have to make sure we have a link to that on the Infinite Earth Radio website. And you also mentioned the Human Right to Water. So California passed the Human Right to Water Act. That grew out of an effort by the United Nations that passed a resolution recognizing the Human Right to Water and Sanitation in 2010. I think in California, at least in the conversations I've been a part of, most of that conversation has centered around providing safe, affordable drinking water. But you brought up the point of sanitation as a human right. So if water and sanitation are basic human rights, how do we ensure that all of our, the members of our community, including our neighbors without homes, are provided that right? Well, that, that question is at the core of the conversations we're having now. And the implications of that policy in California that include the idea that sanitation is part of that right to water, um, that is still very much an ongoing conversation where everyone is trying to get their hands wrapped around it. And I don't know that I have an answer yet. It is something that we need to sort out. It's, It's easy for us to imagine one way to support someone who doesn't have sufficient access is to subsidize that access. That's sort of the natural thought, like, okay, they can't afford it, so let's help them pay for it. The riddle is, though, in water, in this water situation, to subsidize someone, they need to have a a utility bill, right? They need to have water service to their tap that they can't afford. They need to have a sanitation. They need to have a toilet. And subsidizing someone's drinking water and sanitation um, when they don't have a home at which to provide those services is a really tricky puzzle that we haven't really got our hands wrapped around yet. So, Mike, this is really, this is obviously a very complex issue. And as you stated, there are many intersection points between the issue of homelessness and water management. We talked about pollution, flood protection, sanitation, basic human rights issues, and riparian habitat. So where can folks that are interested in learning more get information about how do we address these issues? Yeah, it's interesting that this list is something that we've really earned over the last year and a half. And it's the core of our thinking. We, I've had the good fortune of having two Civic Spark Water Fellows here at Santa Ana Watershed Project Authority working with me. And they're uh, taking point on generating a white paper that's going to lay out all these intersections 
and provide some data and other models from how these these issues are being confronted elsewhere in the state and in uh, the United States. So I'm really excited to have them on board. And this white paper I'm hoping is uh, ready sometime in the new year that can lay out all these things and provide links to others. I look forward to reading the white paper. Quick plug for Civic Spark. The local government commission manages a governor's initiative AmeriCorps program called Civic Sparks. For our listeners that are here in California, you could receive capacity building support from two recent college graduates if you're a local public agency trying to address climate change or water management issues. And Mike has had the pleasure of supervising two separate teams of Civic Spark fellows over the past two years. So Mike, tell us a little bit more about some of the partnerships you're seeing in the community to both provide services to our homeless neighbors, as well as address some of these water management issues. Yeah, it's interesting here at Santa Ana Watershed Project Authority, one of our roles has always been to build and facilitate broad water management partnerships. And that's been a claim to our fame over the years. And it's been a trajectory that's been happening throughout California is that move towards more integrated water management. And what became pretty clear as soon as we started looking into this issue of homelessness is that those broad partnerships do exist already in the context of the homelessness issue. So it includes city government and state agencies, regulatory agencies, uh, faith-based initiatives, nonprofits, businesses. There's broad collaboratives working across the areas of our watershed on homelessness. And in general, the water agencies weren't there yet. So really what we're thinking about is that there's an opportunity for water to join as a partner in these broader efforts and play an important supportive role. The city of Riverside, our partner, has recently created an office of homelessness solutions that is spearheading a housing first effort inside the city to help try to move more of the people who are living without homes into permanent supportive housing. City of Riverside claims a functionally zero homeless veterans for the city, and they've been working really hard at it over the years. And when we first approached them to say that we were thinking about these issues too, they were very excited to have us join what is already a broad partnership between the city government and the various civil society partnerships inside the faith-based community and in the nonprofits. So there's these broad collaboratives that are already at work trying to confront homelessness that were eager to have the water community join in. And it provides a platform for us to bring our authority and our knowledge and responsibilities to bear on a much more complicated problem than we can handle alone. And you mentioned a one easy quick fix that is within the authority of a water agency, just notifying the sheriff's department when you're going to be releasing water. What are some other things that water agencies can do to help address the issue of homelessness? Yeah, this is a puzzle that's still being unwound in our region. Not all the agencies have come to see the linkages as clearly as we have. And that's part of our role is helping facilitate this growth of people's knowledge. So there are other agencies in the state that have done some very interesting things the Santa Clara Valley Water District up in San Jose uh, came to understand that a homeless encampment that had become a social 
services and law enforcement challenge in one of the channels was also impacting their services. And they ended up being able to put resources into the social service response to that encampment. That allowed them to see their mission complete, even though the thing that they were supporting wasn't directly water-related. By helping the social services sector achieve a solution for that encampment, their mission benefited in the long run. And being able to narrate together that trajectory, that idea that we can be supportive of someone else's role, knowing that if they're successful, we'll be successful. It's really encouraging to see those partnerships being built and communication happening between water agencies and other service providers. Unfortunately, we're out of time. So Danielle and Mike will pick up this important conversation about water and homelessness next week. Thank you all for listening, and we look forward to seeing you next time on Infinite Earth Radio. Infinite Earth Radio is a podcast produced by Skio in association with the Local Government Commission. To learn more about Skio, Infinite Earth Radio guests, or how you can make a difference in your community, visit our website at infiniteearthradio.com or join us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash Infinite Earth Radio and Twitter by following at Infinite Earth Radio.